Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Max Kolish, the co-founder of Zinc.io, an e-commerce lab that builds products to help Amazon and eBay sellers. Every SaaS founder knows that finding product market fit is really tough. You might have to pivot your SaaS business multiple times before you find the right product for the right market. So what can we learn from SaaS founders who failed repeatedly before they found success? When Max and Doug were students at MIT, they talked about building a software product to help eBay sellers. And eventually, they both dropped out of college to start their business. They got accepted into YC, but pretty soon realized that their idea wasn't that great after all. So within a few weeks, they pivoted and built a product that saved people money when buying on Amazon. They got some good traction, and it looked like they were on their way to finding product market fit. But that all changed when they received a cease and desist letter from Amazon. So they were back to square one again. They needed another idea. One day, they received an email out of the blue from an ex-customer who told them, that he wanted to use an API but wasn't technical, and he asked them if they could help him out. That email led to Max and Doug pivoting again and creating a new product. But this time, it wasn't just an idea they'd come up with themselves. It was something a real customer needed. And the product resonated with the market this time and helped them to get traction. Today, their company generates over $5 million in annual recurring revenue. It's a great story about persistence, flexibility, listening to your customers, and how to successfully pivot your SaaS business. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we get started, there are a couple of things I want to tell you about. Firstly, I've created a great resource for you called the SaaS Toolkit, which will tell you about the 21 essential tools that every SaaS business needs. You can get a free copy of the toolkit by going to thesaspodcast.com. Secondly, if you need help building, launching, and growing your SaaS business, then check out SaaS Club Plus. It's our online community for early stage SaaS entrepreneurs designed to help you get the insights, motivation, and support you need. Just head over to sasclub.co to learn more. Okay, let's get on with the interview. Max, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks, Omar. So I like to ask my guests if they have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates them. Do you have one? Or, Or maybe just tell us, you know, in your own words, what gets you out of bed every day? (laughs) <laughs> I have a lot of favorite quotes, but I like uh, Embrace the Struggle um, is one that I've repeated to myself a bunch of times and basically just touches on the fact that you have to kind of wake up every day kind of trying to fight a lot of different forces as a startup founder. And if you embrace it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a good reminder for any entrepreneur. Exactly. <laughs> Great. So tell us about Zinc. Like, what is the product or products in this case? Who's it for and what problem are you trying to solve? Yeah. So Zinc, we're about five years old. We started, I'll kind of tell you a little bit about the origin story of the company. Me and my co-founder met back in college at MIT. And then he was working on a uh, couple of different ideas. He was basically actually doing dropship arbitrage, but he was in high school and he was trying to productize some of that software that he built into a software as a service company. And basically I was kind of working with him. I was doing my master's and I was bored of the master's. And so we decided to apply to YC with some of the stuff we were working on, got into YC, 
kind of really floundered and didn't really know what we were doing in the startup accelerator, didn't have a lot of success with what we were working on at the time, pivoted halfway through YC into a consumer product because we just wanted to get a lot of traction for demo day. And so we had in, in six weeks, we built a brand new product that basically helped consumers shop online. Um, it helped them save money automatically. That was called Zinc Save. And we ended up raising money around that, had some traction for it, you know, it was doing pretty well, and then got a cease and desist from Amazon. And then after that, we basically spent another six months trying to figure out what we were actually building. And after that, we kind of landed on what we're doing today. And so what we're doing today is Zinc is basically a holdings company. We have a, several different products, two of which are SaaS and one of which is an enterprise product. Um, and so the SaaS products are Priceyak, which is a dropship arbitrage power seller tool, and JoeLister, which is a cross-listing tool for Amazon to eBay sellers. So I'll be talking a bit about those as well. And we also have an enterprise software arm where we basically expose our underlying APIs to the to larger companies. Got it. Great. So let's go back to the MIT days. And uh, like, how did you come up with the idea for this business? Yeah. So my co-founder used to do dropshipping in high school. And for those that aren't familiar, basically dropship arbitrage, what it entails is finding things that are sold on one website cheaper than they're sold on another website. And then when somebody makes a purchase, you basically list the thing on the place where it's more expensive, undercut the best seller there. And then when somebody makes a purchase, you just order it from the uh, lower price website. And it's pretty straightforward. And it's kind of an easy way to get into e-commerce. A lot of people, a lot of companies focus on the kind of price saving extensions, tools to help shoppers. But actually, it's the sellers that have more incentive to find these these savings because then they can drive a lot of traffic to their sales and they can, instead of just buying it once, they can sell it 100 times. And so as a seller, you kind of can do this and it's kind of like market making for the physical goods world. So my co-founder used to do this in high school. And one of the coolest things that kind of came about from that was an API to buy anything online and particularly from Amazon. So Amazon and really no other retailers have an API for making purchases and we needed one. And so we built one and we thought, hey, maybe this isn't just useful for dropshippers. This could be useful for a lot of other business types. And so that was kind of the idea that we applied to YC with was, hey, let's build the kind of ordering infrastructure for the future um, and create these APIs to place orders instantaneously without actually going to the website. So your fridge can order things automatically when, when it runs out of groceries or your bathroom can order more toilet paper, whatever it might be. That was kind of the idea. Got it. Okay. So you see this opportunity for building a product around dropship arbitrage, which I think on its own is a really interesting business that you can kind of, like you say, you can get into e-commerce and have basically no inventory, no kind of, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a really interesting kind of model, but maybe that's a different conversation for another day. So you see this uh, opportunity there to build a product. What did you do next? Yeah. So the way we actually got into that was, you know, we, we kind of didn't think that the dropshipping was actually a huge opportunity initially. And so we said, Hey, let's sell this to enterprises. Let's do this consumer Chrome extension, et cetera. So we tried to actually a bunch of different things. And then about a year into the company, we had another customer who was actually interested in doing the dropshipping. And they contacted us about using our API directly. And they said, Hey, you know, I'm not technical. I want to integrate this API, but I want to use it for my dropshipping. And then we said, Hey, actually, you know, Doug used to do this way back when. And so we built a kind of lightweight version for this customer of this product, which consisted of, you know, tying into their eBay account, tying into their Amazon account and automatically tracking things when they sell and, and making the purchase. And that's what ultimately evolved into Price Yak, 
And so the way we kind of stumbled into that was getting interest from a customer for, for a tangential you know, product that we had, which was this API. So luckily, that early customer was like, hey, we'll pay you. They set up the specs. They were like, we'll pay you a few thousand dollars a month. And we said, hey, you know, we don't have any other really good ideas right now. So let's go with this guy. And then we just got more and more interest for that product. You went through a number of pivots to get to where you are today. What was the original idea that you started with? Yeah, the very original idea was basically using this ordering API that we'd built to allow publishers to create on-site shopping carts. So that was another part of the kind of our YC pitch was publishers, which are like generally bloggers or these affiliate marketers or whoever, their business is through affiliates. So they have links that they link off to the retailers with. And then when the consumer makes a sale, the publisher actually gets a cut of that, right? Some affiliate commission, 4 to 15% typically. The biggest problem with that is that the publisher actually loses the customer, right? So you, you, know, you, you click away and all of a sudden you are on a different website and it's kind of confusing and there's a lot of drop off and also the publisher that can't you know, sell you other products. So the idea was you as a publisher, a blogger, whoever can actually create a shopping cart that would work across multiple websites. And so you could add stuff, you know, you could buy a whole outfit with the shirt from Macy's and the pants from Nordstrom and et cetera, et cetera. And then you could just place one order and we would split it up on the back end. The customer would stay on your site as the publisher and you would get the affiliate commission and keep the customer on your website. So that was kind of the idea. And there was some interest in it for sure. The market was a little bit smaller than we expected. So there was a lot of challenges in that, which I can go into as well. Okay. So you start with that idea and that's the idea you used to get into YC. Correct. And then at some point, getting up to, you mentioned this earlier about Demo Day, you pivoted and picked another idea. So number one, like, what was that next idea and and why did you change so quickly? Yeah, so the next idea was the Zinc Save browser extension for helping consumers save money. The reason we pivoted halfway through YC was because we were basically trying to close this one big enterprise deal with a very large affiliate marketer and it wasn't moving. You know, it was clear that it wasn't going to happen anytime soon, let alone in time for demo day so that we can say, Hey, we have this big flagship customer. And so we had to make a decision of, you know, let's move on and let's just try to get something with a lot of growth in time for demo day. That was the decision. Okay. So you're now currently with the zinc save browser extension And how long did you guys work on that idea before you pivoted again? So that was a few months. We got about 25,000 users in just six weeks. We basically built it in two weeks, did growth for a launch on TechCrunch, launched it in a bunch of places and got like 25,000 users. And it was working really well, actually, until I should mention, we we fundraised on that. We we raised some money around that, that idea. And then a few weeks after we were done fundraising, we got a cease and desist letter from Amazon, basically saying that we shouldn't allow, you know, we can't do this because it violates some sort of privacy between them and the end consumer, which realistically wasn't a real thing, wasn't a real problem. But for us, we were kind of, you know, small and we knew we would never beat them in, in court or anything like that. So and we just kind of moved on from that idea. Okay. So you raised around 400000 at that point for this idea? Yes. Okay. And tell me a little bit about like what did Zinc Save actually do? Like how did it work? Yeah, so Zinc Save was super cool. The way it would work is it was a browser plugin that you would install. You would kind of forget about it, and then when you were shopping on Amazon, right at the last page of checkout, right below the place order button, you would see another button that would say "Buy with Zinc Save" for some price that's five to ten percent off. 
And if you click that button, we basically take all the data from that page, open a new page on our website, and it would offer the same product to you at a reduced price. And so you could buy it from us in real time with the better price. And the idea there is there's so many ways to get savings on things, but people don't want to go through the hassle of using the correct credit card, using the right Ebates or whatever rewards program. We'll just do it for you. And we're just going to consolidate that all. And so we were actually able to run run out of a break even. But I think the real reason that Amazon ultimately sent us a cease and desist was that they kind of obviously want to be seen as the best price. So if there's a service that's offering a consistently better price, no matter how they're doing it, it doesn't look good for Amazon. So that's the reasoning, I think, for the cease and desist. So when you gave them the saving, were they buying from somewhere else or were they still ending up buying from Amazon, but you were just finding better savings for them? So both. We would be the merchant of record. So we would charge their credit card. They would, the purchase would happen with us. But we were fulfilling from, oftentimes it was just Amazon, the same, the same Amazon seller. We would just have you know, different credit cards or we were doing discounted gift cards, all sorts of stuff that, that you could kind of do to get savings. Oftentimes we were also buying it from a different retailer. That was the real cool part is that you know, oftentimes Amazon isn't the best price. And so we would go and we would programmatically find better prices elsewhere. And then if they matched you know, the same shipping speed and all that, we would actually just buy it there. And so this was a, I think it was, you know, a really cool idea because at the end of the day, you know, Amazon wants you to believe they have the best price. Every store wants you to believe they have the best price, but it's very rare that you can't be the best price and also be making money consistently. So we were losing money on some orders, but making money on others. So funnily enough, getting the cease and desist at this point is, is kind of good and bad, right? Because it's bad because nobody wants to get a cease and desist, especially from a company like Amazon. But I guess it's good because it showed that you were doing something or getting enough traction that they were paying attention to it. Yep, exactly. We were definitely, um, you know, we had definitely gotten their attention and it kind of was cool. We, we were always thinking about using it as publicity, but at the same time, we, we never got around to it. So it kind of faded off the, off the map. Okay. So what did you guys decide to do? Like you, you said, you, you mentioned earlier, like, okay, it didn't seem like it was worth trying to fight this against Amazon. So what's, what was the thinking process you went through? And, and then what did sort of the next pivot look like? So after that, we spent a couple of months, four to five months kind of figuring things out. And it wasn't an explicit pivot, but we tried a couple of things. We tried our own storefront. We tried our, we tried a bunch of different ideas. We were, you know, lucky enough that we, we had just graduated. We were, you know, we had some money in the bank from the fundraise. And so we kind of had some time to just sit back and think about things and, and try a bunch of different ideas. And it's fun. You know, we're both, me and my co-founder, both software engineers. We were both just coding most of the time. And so we were just trying a bunch of different stuff. And the next thing that we kind of figured out was what I mentioned earlier was where we had a customer who was actually willing to pay some money for us to develop a product for them. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, how did that person turn up? Like, was it just out of the blue? Yeah, we well, we were publicizing the API and we were saying, hey, order anything on the internet. And then some this person reached out and said, hey, like, I would love to use this API, but I don't know how to code. And so that was, you know, we got it through inbound for our initial product. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just walk me through the process in terms of like, okay, it's great to have somebody who's asking for this, but how do you sort of, how do you decide whether this is a product opportunity or something that you're just doing as a, kind of a consulting gig as a one-off and building it for somebody and nobody else necessarily needs the same solution. Totally. So initially we did think it would be a one-off thing. And then we actually outsourced the engineering work to a friend of ours who is now actually our CTO. But in hindsight, he was just a kind of a friend that was doing some consulting work for us. And what happened was we kept getting more and more customer demand for this. 
that we basically just said, okay, hey, we got to bring this in house. And once we had more than just a few people using it, we said, okay, maybe we should focus on this for real, build it into a full-fledged product. Okay. And what did that product look like? Is that basically what, was that sort of like the first version of, of what is now Price Yak? That's right. Exactly right. Okay. So you built the product, you've got one customer, the product comes together. Let's talk a little bit about like growth. Like how do you get the second customer or the 10th customer? Yeah. So with Priceyak, it was, we had a bunch of different tactics. A lot of it was figuring out who is drop shipping. And we basically developed our own methodology for figuring out who on the internet was a drop shipper, right? So based on looking at a seller, looking at what they're selling, things like that, obviously proprietary, we, we could figure out who's a drop shipper. And then it was just a matter of getting in touch with them. And usually it was a pretty easy sale once we did get in touch with them, because we're like, Hey, you know, you're probably, you probably have people that you're hiring that are doing all this manual work or you're fulfilling the orders yourself, or you probably have a lot of issues with whatever software you were using because we knew ours was was a lot better. And so that's kind of how that came about. So I was looking at the Price Jack homepage earlier and I couldn't kind of figure out the pricing. It just, I mean, I just saw something which just said like totally free until April. Yeah. But like, how are you monetizing that? Well, it's free for a certain tier of seller. So if you're selling um, less than a certain number of listings, it's free. And then once you get above a certain volume, it's a there's a per order and a per listing price. So for us to reprice your listings and for us to fulfill your orders. Okay. And how long did it take you to build that business and, and kind of feel like you were getting traction? Like you guys are doing what somewhere like around five, six million ARR at the moment? Across all our products, Across yeah. Our products. So like, yeah, just g- give me sort of a picture of like, like how long were you working on this? Was this like, because you, you had a couple of other products come along, right? And so I want to kind of talk about when those happened, but like... So with Priceyak, we basically, once we had a few customers for it, we knew that it would be kind of a big thing because usually when there's just, you know, there's a few customers, that means there's probably more than just a few. And so we were like, okay, let's take this seriously. We started building that. And about a year down the line, we started thinking about new products that we can build. What else can we leverage our technology and our infrastructure to build? And that's when Joe Lister came about. And so Joe Lister was our, was our second SaaS product. And just briefly describe what that does. Yeah, so Joe Lister is the easiest and fastest multi-channel selling tool for Amazon sellers. So there's a lot of multi-channel selling tools out there, but a lot of them focus on a bunch of retailers that most sellers don't actually make sales on, Walmart, Newegg, things like that. Um, and so they focus on just all these tons of integrations, which makes the product a little bit more complex than it needs to be. And so what we realized is actually for most Amazon sellers who are reselling you know, typical products, they make the most sales on Amazon and they make the second most sales on eBay. And that's just like the general breakdown. Like we've surveyed a bunch of sellers and almost all of them are, you know, around 75, 80% Amazon, 15, 15 or so percent eBay, and then maybe 5% everything else combined. And so we said, Hey, let's simplify that. Let's make it a super easy product, just focused on Amazon to eBay. And we use Amazon as the source of truth. So basically within getting started, you know, you, you just off your Amazon, off your eBay, and then we pull in all of your Amazon inventory Within a few minutes, you can make your first listing on eBay. I mean, the coolest thing we do is also you can do bulk listings. So we actually look at the Amazon page um, to figure out stuff like title, description, stuff that you can't get a full view of through the Amazon API. And so you know, the Amazon page, we look at the manufacturer's kind of data. We look at reseller data to basically create a really rich listing for our sellers. And what were you doing to grow that? Right, Were you used to taking the same approach in terms of like just finding... Amazon sellers and and just reaching out to them? 
Yeah, so Jolister was a little bit different. The way it came about was we had a couple of pricey sellers who said, hey, I actually want to do the same thing, but for my own inventory. And we said, okay, that's kind of interesting. It's you know backwards from what we've typically done. And so there's a couple of sellers in particular that we worked with, one of whom had a big newsletter. And he said, hey, I think there's this opportunity to like, I know I need this. And I think there's this opportunity to build this product in this kind of space, which is kind of a little bit more down market from typical channel advisor type solutions, which are the big companies that customers like Nike use. So he basically helped us with the initial product development. And then he said, hey, I know there's other sellers that need this. Let me you know, advertise this in my newsletter. And the thing about the advertisements, I can touch more on this later too, is that we basically haven't paid people to write about Joe Lister. We've only given credit in terms of service fees, which I think is really nice because it aligns incentives really well. And, and if somebody really wants to write about Joe Lister in exchange for credits on the platform, that means that A, they're enjoying the product enough to be using it themselves, You know that they're actually using the credit. It's not just like they're writing about it and taking money. And B, it obviously costs us less. You know what I mean? We're, we're just paying them in credit. And so uh, that's been a really effective kind of uh, trick that we've used. It's a good filtering mechanism for seeing who should be writing about your product. Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, it's really hard to trust some of the reviews you re- read out there for like hosting services or some tools when, you know, behind the scenes, you know, those they're offering massive affiliate commissions. Mm-hmm. And that's like the main reason you're seeing such glowing articles, right? Yep. So, so when somebody isn't getting paid to write that stuff, I think obviously that's a much stronger sign that you actually have a great product that you know people are willing to do that yeah exactly i think it, i think it's good for the ecosystem to to have people writing about it who are actually using it so both these products started by you talking to users and and people telling you like what they wanted to do and you just seeing that as an opportunity to solve the problem for them and and turn it into a product absolutely yeah we've always had a very customer focused approach so if we've always built stuff that you know people have told us directly or implied directly that they want. What else were you doing to to try and grow? So so far we've talked about like just the I guess the prospecting, finding out where these customers are, reaching out to them. You're getting some kind of promotion through like the, this person having a big newsletter. Was there anything else that you were doing? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things that we kind of got a little bit lucky and, or, or, you know, made sense. So for the early stuff, you know, we were in YC, so we had good access to a bunch of media publications. I wrote a Huffington Post article at one point, you know, we were in TechCrunch and Lifehacker and all these different sites. So creating content that sites like that are willing to share is obviously very, very good. Um, or I should say creating apps or services that sites like those are interested in sharing. And then having the connections to get in touch with those and get featured there, obviously through YC or through whatever other means, that's super helpful. So that was a big thing early on. Down the line, we also had this one interesting Stack Overflow post. So we do a bunch of content marketing, but not in the traditional sense. So we basically answered questions on on Quora, on Stack Overflow, on all these kind of sites that have people asking questions. And there's one on Stack Overflow that my co-founder answered, which was like, does Amazon have an API? You know the, the accepted answer is no, and then we just say yes. It, it's actually it, it actually is possible to place orders on Amazon via API uh, right below that, and so we got a bunch of traffic from that. Quora has been very good in terms of just people very directly asking questions about whether or not this service is possible. Um, we obviously have the advantage of you know it's it's not like it's there's many services that offer this because it is a really hard thing to do to do in a sophisticated manner to create an API for these sites. So we 
we got lucky in the sense that a lot of people were asking and the answer was usually no, it's not possible. And then we can come in and say, actually, yes, it is possible. And so that's kind of, you know, appealing to people. How do you guys do that? Like, how are you able to let people use, basically create an Amazon API? Yeah, that's where the hard tech comes in. I think it's, it's uh, you know, in theory, it's very easy. We just have browser automation that does everything a human would do in placing an order. Um, but it's actually incredibly complex behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm just like, my brain is just like, whirring away kind of thinking about how you do something like that yeah next time you're shopping on amazon you can kind of imagine a robot doing it and, and see how that would work <laughs> and, uh, right. yeah. Yeah. um but yeah that's that's kind of wh- why we we had a big advantage is that you know it's not it, it's a hard thing to build and so when people you know it was kind of like a magical experience for people who were like i thought i had to pay people to do this manually and sit around at the computer all day and that sort of thing and, and we can provide them with this way you know 10x better experience so amazon sent you a cease and desist when you guys were building or trying to grow zinc save that's right has there been any issue with doing this in terms of creating this sort of api experience for amazon no we've been in touch with a bunch of people at amazon and and um kind of cleared certain things but no we haven't had any issues okay and so the third product just tell me briefly about that so that's called buybot right um, Bybot is actually, we're not focused on Bybot anymore. We actually are about to open source it. Okay. So that's kind of a, that was kind of a hack week project that we briefly thought about productizing. So what's the enterprise solution you, you mentioned earlier? So we call that the buy API, um, okay. the Zinc API, and that's just the same API, but also pricing, we call it price and details API. So if you want to get a structured view of an Amazon page or a structured view of a particular seller on Walmart, um, that's all really, really easy to do with our API. And we're, we, we just allow people to do very, very high volumes. Um, so we're scraping across the internet, we're scraping tens of billions of pages a day. And so we're one of the highest volume scrapers. So we actually have some enterprise clients who are large retailers and they want to do competitive intelligence or their sellers themselves, all sorts of different kind of customers that want structured data from um, e-commerce sites. You've also been doing some content marketing as a way to try and grow the business, but that hasn't been working out so well so far, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think we've we've tried a bunch of content marketing. It doesn't really tend to pan out. I think in my experience, it's kind of what I mentioned earlier. It's, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of content marketers and they kind of look for things to write about. You know, they're they're gonna oversell their audience, they're gonna do all this stuff. And usually it's not particularly it ends up not being super effective or targeted. So I think in that sense, again, it's really important to go to people who are really the kind of people that you're trying to reach, um, you know, it sounds obvious, but you got to really grill them about, Hey, how many, you know, people are actually on your mailing list? Like how many, how many of those are actually like real sellers? Things like that, I think are really important to figure out before. But I, th- I do think there are certain advantages to, we have done some content marketing more recently. And I think the, the thing that does work is really good content. I think any company or a lot of companies have the capability to create actually good content. That's not just another generic like list of best tools to do this and that. We've created some good content based on you know proprietary data and doing actually looking at the data that we have and doing some analytics on that and explaining what this means for sellers. I think that sort of stuff is usually interesting, but obviously it takes a lot more work. So people <laughs> tend to not do it as much. And I think it's a lot better to have a smaller amount of content versus a large amount of a smaller amount of good content versus a large amount of bad content or, or mediocre content. But it's hard to incentivize that in the right way sometimes. Now I want to talk a little bit about branding. Uh, you know, like 
Zinc, if, you, if people go to zinc.io, they, it, the homepage says, you know, Zinc is an e-commerce lab, basically. And then mm-hmm. from there, people can link out to the other solutions like Price Yak and Joe Lister, which are separate websites. Why did you decide to do it that way? Why not build, like, like why do you have this kind of Uber company and then these sort of brands? Like, couldn't, couldn't they just have been one product? Like, couldn't Zinc have just been the product? And it did all these things that you describe in Price Yak and Joe Lister? That's a good question. So definitely not, definitely can't be one product. Uh, the products are too different, right? They appeal to two different customer bases. And especially that I didn't even touch on the, the kind of other stuff that we have and that we're working on might not just be for Amazon sellers. Usually, you know, our, our theory and like, you know, the YC mindset and kind of this lean startup mindset is like do one thing really well. So we like to build things that address particular pain points and not these like monoliths that do a bunch of different stuff for people. And so, and the customer bases are not the same customer base. So it would just be confusing because half the people wouldn't use half the features. The question though, I think is a good, good one because why didn't we just like kind of, why do we even bother with, you know, the zinc.io kind of connection between them? And we've kind of thought about that a lot internally and whether it makes sense to just, you know, launch these individual companies because for all intents and purposes, you know, they're individual companies. Like we have a specific teams working on them. There's specific revenue lines, specific costs. For all intents and purposes, they're basically separate companies that share some shared infrastructure. And so we've thought about what the best way for branding that. I would say we we have not done a good job with branding just because it's it is like confusing for some people. Um, so we're we're still actively thinking about that. I think that's an area where we can improve. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it's only confusing for people like me, kind of coming in and and trying to look at the big picture. If you have a customer or somebody who does dropship arbitrage and they find price yak and they go to priceyak.com, there's no confusion for them, right? That's a very focused solution and they don't really care about the other stuff. So it's totally fine. Exactly. I'm glad you, you said earlier about, you know, do one thing really well. And that kind of leads me to like, well, you guys are not doing one, you're, you're doing like three things, right? Like, so right. has that number one, has that been an issue for you and why did you decide to kind of go down that road instead of saying okay yeah we could do all these other things but we're going to pick one of these and just try to go really deep on those we've done both i will say i mean these things you know price yak probably can't make a hundred million dollars a year and so there's definitely you know effects of hey how many how many sellers are there how many how big is market right you know it's unclear if it's even a 10 million dollar a year market and so the point is we we have a lot of ideas we've discovered a lot of really cool things i think that's what we've been really good at is being really opportunistic and seeing opportunities seeing possibilities for products that we could build as we build new things you know that's how jolister came about through like a kind of a price yak connection we said actually hey we're really well suited to build this because we have these really similar tools already built in so things like that we've done really well with and we this is a big kind of ongoing challenge that i think we've done pretty well on is like how do we separate these teams out how do we incentivize these teams and how do we keep it all you know unified in some way and under the same company but the big idea is that we just want to work on a lot of stuff you know we see a lot of possibilities e-commerce is a pretty interesting industry there's a lot of room for solutions to be to be made and improved upon so it's kind of hard to just say okay this is the narrow focus that we're taking but within the product team itself it is very useful to have that narrow focus so I guess the difference is between like what me and my co-founder are thinking about versus what the individual team is thinking about. 
What would you say to somebody, maybe another founder who's listening, who keeps hearing do one thing really well, but they don't want to, they have like, you know, a couple of ideas that maybe they want to run with? Yeah. So I guess the advice is you, you can do one thing really well. It, just do, do things in series, not in parallel. That's, that's the advice that I would suggest. In fact, that's like the kind of what we've done that I think has worked really well. And when we've tried to steer away from that, it hasn't worked as well. I think you want to do things in, in order, you know what I mean? One thing at a time so that any, any one thing at a time is your top priority. It's okay to have stuff on the background that's like, you know, because in a lot of cases, if there's a lot of external dependencies, you can't just be working on one thing, but you can't take on three projects at the same time and take them from, you know, scratch to like really successful. For most people, I feel like they at that. And so what you want to do is say, okay, for the, you know, I'm going to validate this idea. I'm going to work on it for three months. I'm going to give it my all. And then depending on where that's at, I'm going to, determine whether or not I should totally, you know, backburner that idea and work on a new thing, or if I should continue pushing on that particular idea. The mistake a lot of people make is not giving ideas long enough kind of incubation time. I think people want to pivot too quickly. I think there's, you know, it's an art or whatever um, to figuring out how long you should spend on a particular idea. It obviously depends on your personal goals as well. Yeah, no, that's good advice. And, you know, I I get the impression like, you know, what's your co-founder's name? Uh, Doug. Doug. Yeah. I, I kind of get the impression that, you know, you guys are driven by solving problems and, and every time a customer tells you about a problem, there's, you're kind of driven to solve it and, and potentially find another opportunity for a product and maybe kind of having that kind of umbrella in terms of zinc gives you a, the kind of the freedom to explore some of those ideas. And, and maybe that's, what's going to lead to, I mean, having got to like over $5 million ARR is, is great, but I kind of get the feeling that you guys are still looking for, uh, something even bigger. Always. Yeah. That's why we we call it a laboratory. That's what we always are thinking about. And we are working on a few new things right now that, you know, in 2019, hopefully we'll, we'll move the needle pretty significantly for us as well. So, you know, I mean, when we talk about this, it's like you guys met, you and Doug met at MIT, you had this idea for a business applied to YC raised 400K, did some pivots, and then now you guys are running a business doing over 5 million a year. What's been kind of one of the harder points or one of the bigger challenges that that you sort of faced on that journey? There's been a lot. (laughs) Definitely tons of mistakes. I wouldn't say mistakes. I mean, it's just things that you have to learn for yourself a lot of the time. So it's, it's very, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about here. But I think one thing that we are still kind of struggling with is I, I think for the inception of an idea, it's really good to listen to your customers. Um, but later on, I think it's really important for also the team to have a really strong vision of where that product is going. And I think for a lot of stuff, we've relied on customers to give us all the insights. But a lot of the time, if you want to make a really, really kind of futuristic kind of moving the needle product, I think it's really important to have a really good picture yourself and have more visionaries behind the scenes as well. I think the problem that people make is they do that too early and then they actually end up building something that nobody wants. But I think that once you, the way you want to start is by listening to customers to kind of evaluate where you should be building and what space. But after a certain point, I think it's really important, you know, you obviously want to continue listening to your customers, but it's also very important to have a specific direction that you've set out on that's more than just, you know, customer driven. Uh, and that's a little bit of a controversial idea, which is why I kind of like like talking about it. But it's definitely there's definitely been advances that we've made when we sit down and think really hard about a problem ourselves for one of our products versus just listening to customers. You know, listening to customers and listening to everybody, obviously, as you get bigger, is also really challenging because you have feature creep. You have a ton of different kinds of customers. You end up building a product that's kind of this, you know, has a lot of different stuff from a lot of different people, and it's a you know it's a monolith. 
But in reality, you want to really like focus on a narrow customer base, build the think a lot more about the product. So there's this nuance of like, how much do you listen to customers versus how much of the product are you developing yourself? I think that's been a big challenge for us. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting point because I guess you have like two camps, right? Like one, people are either very, very customer driven or then you have kind of more about sort of visionary, whether that's like, you know, the Steve Jobs in terms of, I know better. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, why can't you do both? Like, why can't you listen to customers in terms of understanding what problems they have and, and keep doing a good job in terms of solving those, but they're not necessarily going to help you think about what that product should look like in three years time or five years time. And, and there needs to be some kind of vision in terms of, you know, where you're going to take this thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. We should wrap up. So I'm going to move on to the lightning round. I'm going to ask you seven quick fire questions and uh, just try to answer them as quickly as you can. So you ready? All right. Okay, cool. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Best piece of business advice is to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. Uh, I kind of alluded to that earlier, but you want to basically be solving a real problem and not be you know, tied to the actual way that you're solving it because that could change a lot. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? So we have required reading at Zinc, which is a book called Rework by Jason Fried and uh, David Heinemeyer. And they've started a couple of bootstrap companies, like 37 Signals, and really short, really good read, kind of contrary to popular Silicon Valley wisdom. So recommended. Would you say like your culture is similar? It's like kind of reflective of what they cover in the book? Very similar. Interesting. Yeah, very similar. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? I think the most important thing, the single number one thing is determination. Um, I don't think you have to be like super smart. Uh, obviously it helps, you know, you don't have to have any other qualities for sure, except for determination. The reason that, you know, I say that is entrepreneurs fail because they run out of money or they give up. Right. And if you have, you know, if you kind of are figure out the money side and then you're determined enough, you are pretty much guaranteed success. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? I like thinking through a lot of things in the morning during my shower routine. And I think that uh, I, I bought these shower sticky notes, waterproof little sticky notes uh, for the shower a while back. And uh, those are really, really convenient for organizing your thoughts in the shower. I, I've got to do something like that. It's like I've had so many great ideas in the shower. And uh, by the time I get out, I've forgotten half of them. <laughs> Their tagline is, is don't let another good idea go down the drain. So there's <laughs> love it. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the time? I have a ton of ideas. Every entrepreneur, I think, should have a list, like a long, anytime you have a, an idea that's interesting, you should write it down. I have a list of probably a couple hundred, 250 maybe. And there's a lot of stuff to choose from. But one more, more realistic one is I want to do like a, a CEO or a founder kind of exchange mentorship program instead of just the normal kind of mentorship venues, dinners, whatever. I want to do like a one-to-one, you know, you spend, you as a CEO spend two hours a month shadowing a specific other CEO to kind of learn about what their day-to-day habits are, what their day-to-day work looks like in a way more practical, hands-on setting. Um, and then you just kind of pay it back. Um, and it could be a pretty fun, I don't know if that's a business, but that's a that's no, kind of an cool. idea. I have another one that's a little bit sillier, but there's this really amazing hangover prevention cure called milk thistle. And I want to create like a beer that has milk thistle infused into it. <laughs> so one day. Nice. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? So I'm actually Russian and I was born in Russia and part of my family still lives in Russia and I'm fluent in Russian. So Wow. 
I've been told I don't give off that the Russian vibe, but <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't even get a hint. Like when somebody's usually born in a different country, you can usually kind of. Well, <laughs> when when did you move to the U.S.? When I was five. Okay, yeah. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Uh, I think I I work a lot, but in my free time, I want I like to like snowboard, kiteboard, all sorts of board sports. Cool. All right, cool. Thanks, Max, for joining me. It's been great just to talk about Zinc and, and your suite of products and sort of telling the story and how you guys have built this business. If people want to find out more about Zinc, they can go to zinc.io. Yep. And on the homepage there, there are links to the other products like Price Yak and Joe Lister that, and the API that people can go and check out. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yep. Feel free to email me. I'm max at zinc.io or max at joelister.com. Um, shoot me an email and I tend to get back there. Really. Or max at priceyak.com. Uh, I do. I believe I have a max at priceyak.com as well. I don't use that one as frequently, but yeah. Cool. Thanks for joining me, man. It's been a pleasure and uh, I wish you all the best. All right. Great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. You can get to the show notes by going to thesaspodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the episode and a link to the resources we discussed. If you enjoyed the episode, then head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a rating and review to show your support for the show. I want to give a shout out to Victor Suarez in Costa Rica who left the following review. I'm new in the SaaS business and this podcast has given me a lot of insights by just listening to some of the episodes. The interviews are very well driven and Omer guides the interview in a way the audience can get the most out of the invited entrepreneur's experience. Thanks, SaaS podcast and thanks, Omer. Well, thank you, Victor. Victor is actually the founder of Task Blast, a project management SaaS product for software teams. The product's tagline is as powerful as Jira, as simple as Trello. So if that sounds of interest to you, then you can check it out at taskblast.net. If you leave a review, drop me an email or send me a tweet, and I'd love to give you a shout out on the show as well. I love reading the reviews on iTunes, but the Apple IDs aren't usually the most helpful ways of figuring out who the person is. So if you want to leave a review, you can just go into iTunes. If you're not already there, just go to thesaspodcast.com and click the iTunes button. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Until next time, take care.